passage one more time, verses 28 to 32. It says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, and then for rhetorical effect, these, these last four words all rhyme in Greek. I think the SV does the best job possible uh, trying to hammer home what Paul is saying. He kind of brings it to this concluding crescendo. They are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for your word to us, Lord. We, we say thank you for speaking through the hand of Paul in this wonderful, magnificent letter, this majestic treatise on the goodness of who you are and the glory of all that you have done for us in the name of Christ, in the person of Christ. And in seeing the Lord Jesus and his love, your love for us, it is also revealed to us the exceeding sinfulness of our sin and our penchant for rebelling against you. Lord, this morning, as we consider how society implodes in upon itself as a result of our darkened minds, our debased minds, our prayer, Lord, is that uh, if any who are hearing this message have not trusted in you and not undergone that deep, soul-transforming experience of conversion. Our prayer, Lord, is that you would call them to salvation through your Holy Spirit and for all your people gathered here today. Lord, help us to understand that when it comes to walking in this world, Lord, we should always be prepared to choose the greatest affliction over even the smallest of sins. God, help us to choose in a way that worships you, that glorifies you, and that honors you. Show us that from your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A number of years ago, there was a movie uh, that came out called Master and Commander. It's a naval combat movie, and uh, the, one of the protagonists in this particular story is the Captain Jack Aubrey. And uh, in this particular movie, there's a scene in which Captain Aubrey is sitting down with his officers having a dinner. And this is uh, going back to like, you know, 17th century type warfare where they had cannons and they still sailed according to wind and not, you know, any other kind of power, steam or, or nuclear power. And, and so, as you can imagine, sanitary conditions on these ships were not what they are today. And so Captain Aubrey is sitting there having uh, dinner with a number of his officers in the, captain, in the captain's cabin. And uh, upon the dinner plate, there are some crumbs there from the leftover meal. And there are two weevils that are chewing on the food, two weevils. And, and Captain Aubrey poses a question uh, to his science officer. And he says to him, Stephen, which of these two 
uh, would you choose if you, if you ch wanted to choose one? Of course, being a scientist, he says, well, they're the exact same species, they're the exact same uh, type of creature, and there's no actual distinction between the two of them. And of course, he goes on and on. He says, yes, yes, I understand all that, but if you were forced to choose, and you had to choose one, which one would you choose? And of course, he says, well, I suppose I'd choose the larger one. And then, in a fit of uproarious laughter, Captain Aubrey says, I've got you. And here comes the pun. He says, don't you know that in the naval service, you must always choose the lesser of two weevils? <laughs> you must always choose the lesser of two weevils. And of course, you've, you hear me say that, and, uh, and you're, in your mind, you hear that maxim, that age-old maxim, it is always necessary to choose the lesser of two evils. Two evils. When presented between two bad options, we are encouraged time and again to always choose the less bad option. And of course, there's place for this in our society so long as if we're Christians and we're walking with the Lord, so long as our choice is not in and itself a sin. Let me be very clear this morning. Oftentimes, when walking with the Lord, we will be presented with two poor choices, and so long as we are not willfully sinning, we should always choose the lesser of two evils. But what our society is doing, what is being forced upon us by our culture, by the secular worldview, which inundates and surrounds us on all sides, is not necessarily a choice between the lesser of two evils, but what we are often being encouraged to do is to engage in sin, and what society around us wants us to do is to choose a sin, which is a sin against God, but of course, they will applaud and clap for us. So long as we're choosing sin, they will then encourage us by encouraging us, if necessary, we should choose the lesser of the two sins. And what I want to drive home to you from the text this morning is that there is no place in the Christian's walk with the Lord to ever choose sin. God does not tempt anybody to sin. He himself never sins. And sin is never an instrument used by God to bring about blessing ever. So this is often, in the world around us, it's often understood in terms of the, the pragmatic philosophy of the ends justify the means. Of course, if you have a noble end in goal, uh, if your desire is to achieve some great purpose, then it might necessitate certain choices and, and perhaps the coercion of those around you to engaging in certain actions, which, you know, as the secular worldview understands, it might be uncomfortable. It might be uncomfortable, but the ends justify the means. And this philosophy is used to justify all manner of evil and sinfulness. Um, the pragmatic reasoning that upholds this philosophy is always evil. And the reason why it is always evil is because it inevitably always places virtue in the will of the majority. But nowhere in God's word, nowhere in scripture are we ever reassured that the majority is virtuous just by fact that they are the majority. This is an important thing that we need to be reminded of this morning. To embrace God as the Lord of our life is to renounce all other lords, all other identities, all other systems 
And this decision, if we're going to call Christ king, if we're going to make Jesus our Lord, if we're going to have him for salvation, this decision in the eyes of the world around us, all those who have not embraced Christ, this decision societally, culturally, will always be understood as an act of treason on your part. That's what I want you to see in the text this morning. And of course, as we begin to work our way through it, the question is going to be, as we, as we wrestle with this passage, how do we resist this demand to enter into these false choices of sin, which are ultimately corruption? How do we resist? And how do we walk faithfully with the Lord? I want you to look with me here in Romans chapter 1. Now, just to review and recap a little bit, going all the way back to verse 18, this is Paul's thesis statement. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And in that first paragraph, Paul makes it very clear, everybody knows that there's a God. There's nobody on this earth, nowhere under the sun, not a single soul alive that is unaware that there is a God. They know it by a number of different avenues. They know it, of course, by the fact that they can just look up in the sky and there's a sun and a moon, stars. The world, the universe around us testifies to the reality of God. But men don't want God. And so they have to suppress that truth through their wickedness. Now, that's Paul's opening argument. And then he lists out a series of examples in how this wickedness then grows upon humanity. Again, Paul's point is that the wrath of God is being revealed. So this is a present tense phenomenon. So what happens is God sees us in our sinfulness. And as Paul says over and over again, he allows us to go forward in our sinfulness to experience the consequences of our wicked desires as we choose to rebel against him and to suppress that truth. Many, many years ago, when I first got my driver's license, uh, on the eve of my sweet 16, I know it's much, much later on here for you poor Canadians who have to wait until you're like 19, 21, 22. I don't even know how old you have to be. But uh, when we're in the States, we get it at 16. We get our driver's permit. Uh, the crazy permit where you're allowed to drive with a supervised parent when you're 15. But I remember on the eve of my 16th birthday, my father sat me down and he said, and you just need to understand, in, in our household, we didn't drink alcohol. I wasn't raised that way. It wasn't a major thing for me. Nevertheless, if I was somehow clueless about drinking and driving, my father had that talk with me. He sat me down. And he said, son, if you are ever in an accident and you are ever in jail, as a result of drinking and driving, you need to understand, I'm not coming to bail you out. You will stay in that jail cell until they decide to let you go, or somehow miraculously you come up with money. And between you and me, this is my father talking, we both know you are dirt poor broke, so you're going to stay there a long time. <laughs> Couldn't afford bail. So that was a wonderful warning. It really was. It was a gracious warning. And over and over again, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. So mankind is found with sinful desires in their heart. They don't want to worship God. That's what he says, point blank, in the first paragraph. They don't want to give thanks to God. They don't want to have gratitude for him. They don't want to honor him. And so God, finding these wicked desires in our heart, allows us to chase after those desires to experience the catastrophe that comes as a result of rebelling against God. This is found in homosexual desires. This is found, as Paul says here in verse 28, where we pick it up today, in all sinful desires. 
Paul starts off in verse 28. He says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so won't even acknowledge him. We've done such a good job of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. God gives us up. He repeats that again. He lets us just reap the fruit of all the sinful things we're sowing. And the fruit of this is a debased mind. Now, a number of years ago, I, uh, I went to the grocery store, and I bought some things, and I, I sp- had a $50 bill. I know I have no idea how I had this $50 bill. I don't carry cash now. I don't know why I had a $50 bill. That's awfully rich money for a guy like me. But anyway, I had a $50 bill, and I gave it to the, the cashier, and she gave me you know, the change back, a couple of 20s and a 5 and some, some coins. And I remember going to the bank later that day, and I remember going to turn that money into the bank. Uh, because my wife was encouraging me to use a debit card. And I remember this clearly. It's like, you don't need cash anymore. You got this debit card. And I went to give it to the, the clerk at the bank. And she says to me, she's, she looks at the money. She says, this is a counterfeit $20 bill. Yeah, they gave me a 20 counterfeit at the grocery store. So I was, I was shortchanged. But that's the idea behind this word debased. So you're given something that looks like it has a certain kind of value to it, but it's false. And it doesn't actually represent anything, and there's no actual value to it. And that's the word that Paul is using to describe our minds. As we have gone after these sinful desires and suppressed the truth about God, our thinking has become corrupted. That's his statement here. So you might think you're reasoning in a certain way that is good. You might think that you're logicking your way through various options and you're choosing options that are going to be beneficial, that are going to turn out okay. But what Paul is saying is that as a result of our sin and going after our sinful desires, God has allowed us to experience what is a sign of his wrath, a sign of his judgment, that we now are incapable of actually thinking correctly. Our mind are darkened, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, and we're not able to actually understand or logic our way through all of these various options. We're not actually able, based solely on our intellect, to think our way after God, to think our way to God, or to think our way towards decisions that would honor Him or that would be uh, consistent with His character, what He would desire for our lives. Now, what is the result of that? Paul tells us. He says, verse 29, uh, be, uh, sorry, tail end of verse 28, a debased mind. So, so because of our sinfulness, God gives us over to a debased mind, that is a mind that appears to have the value of a mind, but really doesn't. And the result of that debased mind now is that we engage in doing things which ought not to be done. That's moral terminology. So there's a moral path and there's an immoral path. And of course, Ethically speaking, Christians understand we have to walk the moral path. That's the path that God would go. That's the path that his character would have us to go because that's the path of real blessing. And any other path is going to be destructive. As we've seen here in Romans 1, it's either going to be self-destructive or it's going to be societally destructive. And it's both, as a matter of fact. You're going to destroy yourself and the world, society, as you're experiencing it when you start to make these decisions out of a debased mind. You start to engage in immorality, Paul says. And he tells you what it looks like. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. It wasn't that they did a little sin. It wasn't that they did the least sin. It wasn't that they were presented with two different options of sin and they chose the least of two sins Paul is saying, no, actually what's happening here is that the lesser sin only makes way for the greater sin. 
that in choosing in one form of wickedness only opens the door for and prepares for you then to advance and pursue the greater wickedness. Paul says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, he says. And he goes on to talk about what this looks like. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. So they're extremely evil. It just goes from one shocking depth of evil to the next shocking depth of evil. And all of this is to emphasize that when it comes to sin, sin is sinful. The power of sin is a dark, sinister power that holds us, and it moves us, and it drives us, and we are bound by it. And it's not just a little white sin. It's a big, dark, horrific sin. And one degree of sin just moves us further and further to the next degree. There is here an exceeding sinfulness to even the smallest of sins, he is saying. And he goes on, he said, tail end of verse 29. You might say he starts small, but he eventually works his way up. He starts off by saying they are gossips and slanderers. So at the bottom end of the totem pole, there is an absolute disregard for other people's reputations. And of course, Scripture portrays God as always being concerned to protect our reputation, even even when he knows that we're sinful. Nevertheless, in God's interactions with us, he never lets us be accused or blamed, from his perspective, of things of which we are not truly guilty. God takes care to protect our reputations, but we don't take care to protect each other's reputations. I'm reminded of that illustration that I heard many, many years ago in which Uh, A kid went and confessed to his youth pastor, said, I'm guilty of the sin of gossip and slander, and I've gossiped and slandered against uh, my fellow teenagers here in the youth group. What should I do? And he said, go ahead and take a feather and go around, take a a bunch of feathers from a a feather pillow, I guess, and go around town and put a feather on the porch of every doorstep, uh, every household of every kid you, you gossiped and slandered. So the kid went and did this, and they came back to the youth pastor, and he said, all right, what now, youth pastor? And the youth pastor said, now I want you to go and pick them all up. And of course, as you understand the illustration, he goes back to these doorsteps and he can't find these feathers. They've blown away. They've blown all over town. That's the nature of gossip. That's the nature of slander. It just is something that once it's unleashed, it just keeps burning and keeps spreading. And it tears people down. Tears people down. So Paul starts here. And that is a wickedness which though less than something like murder, still, as a wickedness, brings God's judgment. And God says he gives us over to it. He gives us up to it. So that we all now live in a broken world. Our sin has contributed to the brokenness of this world. And I dare say probably every single one of us in this room has been the victim at some point already in their lives of the pain of a maliciously slandered reputation. You've already endured, probably at some point, the pain of others gossiping about you. You've probably entered into a room at some point in which people were talking, and and as soon as they see you enter, they're like, "Uh uh-huh, mm. And you have this sinking suspicion that they were probably saying something about you, but they didn't have the courage or really the holiness before the Lord to come and talk to you directly. They just like to whisper about it all around you. And you know that pain. Well, that's still a sin. That's still wrong, and that's still beneath God's character. Of course, this is all of our society. Now we all know this pain. And what it leads to is a fracturing of relationships. And that fracturing of relationships starts off with just 
demonizing others, demagoguing them, criticizing them, saying things about them that are not true in order to make them less than the human beings that God created them to be, in order to dismiss them. This is the purpose of slander and gossip. But that opens the door then for even more wickedness. See, it doesn't just stop there. In our culture, in our society, it starts here and then it begins to advance and progress to something even worse. And Paul spells it out. They are haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Okay, so they're arrogant. This is, this is the crime of being self-absorbed. Having engaged in slander and destroying other people's reputations when they think about God, they don't care for God. That's the euphemistically kind way of putting it. They hate him, and it progresses from there. They are now self-absorbed, self-preoccupied. They are interested in their own selves. This is the classic sin of pride. Paul uses a series of adjectives to describe it. He says, basically, as you're looking at the text, they are haughty, boastful. These are individuals who are insolent. There's, There's an arrogance to them. And, of course, this arrogance now leads to being inventors of evil, inventors of evil. You know, we have a school here at First Baptist Church, and not often, but every once in a blue moon, I like to go out at recess or I like to go out at uh, lunchtime, especially with the younger kids, the K to 3 group. And I like to watch them just play. You know, it's fascinating. You put kids on a grassy field, they have next to no toys, maybe a ball, and, and within about 35 seconds, they've got some really crazy game that they've come up with. And, of course, the rules seem to be growing and changing every second so that the adult can't quite know exactly what he's supposed to be doing. But all the kids know what's going on. Well, I'm more and more getting too out of shape to run around and play those games. And so I like to just sit and watch them play. But what I find is it's always something different every day. There's no end to the imagination, no end to the creativity that they can employ this gift that God has given them in order to come up with some fun game to play. And what Paul tells us here is that same creativity, that same imagination, which God gives as a good gift, is also employed to devise new ways to sin against God. This is like Satan's playground. (laughs) This is like the place where wickedness comes to flourish and grow and become exceedingly wicked. Paul says they are haters of God. And he starts off there, and then he uses these adjectives. They're insolent, they're haughty, they're boastful. And you're like, wow, this is really bad. But then he makes this amazing statement. They are inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. And then, of course, this rhetorical flourish at the end. These words all rhyme in Greek. And Paul's point here is just to say every possible form of wickedness that could be thought of or conceived of It is true to humanity in general. Every one of us has indulged in sinful rebellion against God. We have actively gone against the Lord. And so Paul finishes this off with this flourish. He says, they are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's like supposed to be like the staccato machine gun repetition. The end. This is the truth of who we are. Humanity apart from God. Then comes this sort of parenthetical comment, which is particularly damning. He says there in verse 32, though they know God's decree. Now just stop there. 
They know God's decree. Again, we go all the way back to the very beginning of this paragraph, back to verse 18, and it says, they know there's a God. They know that he's out there. They know that he's real. They have that truth. They just look up at the night sky. Anyone that's born, that's gone out and just seen sunshine knows that there is a God. They know it, but they suppress that truth in unrighteousness, Paul has has said. And then he comes here to the very end. He says, they invent all manner of evil. They are like crazy, demonic kids on Satan's playground coming up with fun games in order to come up with creative ways to sin against God. And then he makes this statement. They know what they're doing. They know that it's wrong. And so often you and I, when we are struggling in these interactions that we have with unbelievers, we oftentimes encounter people at work who are gossiping about each other or backstabbing each other or running the rat race, doing all this kind of stuff, and we get into conversations with them. And of course, we're thinking to ourselves, you know, I really, I really can't be too upset, I guess, at my coworkers or my colleagues because after all, they're not Christians. They don't know any better. That is not true. That is not true. It may be the culture of your company. It might be the culture, I pray it's not, but even it might be the culture of your family, your extended family, where we're going to engage in treating each other in cruel, faithless, heartless, ruthless ways. Nevertheless, we never excuse that behavior under the guise of they don't know any better. Paul says, they know. And he has just spent the last whole half a chapter saying, they know. They know it's wrong. There's no excuse. There is no one who is unaware. There is no one that on the day of judgment will stand before the Lord and say, yeah, it was pretty bad, but I didn't know you. God will say, wrong. You did know. Therefore, in our interactions as Christians, if we're to be salt and light, We can't start to think this way about our colleagues. We can't start to excuse or sort of justify, dismiss their behavior as irrelevant or inconsequential as a result of somehow trying to tell ourselves that they don't know. They do know. They know. Paul says, though they know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. Now, now Paul's getting really specific here. Not only do they know that there's a God, he says, they know there's a judgment and they know that their immoral, sinful behavior falls properly and righteously under his judgment. They know all of that. They do something even more heinous. Last verse. Not only, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do those things, That is, they come willingly, voluntarily, under God's judgment of death with their sinfulness, but they encourage others by giving, look at what it says here, they give approval to those who practice these very same things. It says not only do they do those things, but they they give approval to those who also practice. In other words... The world around us is not, as the world would have you believe, morally neutral. 
The world is hostile to God. The world hates him. Therefore, violating the first great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, but even worse, and that's, that is the worst. But in addition to that, they not only hate God, but they hate you. Even amongst their so-called friends that join them in this debauchery. You cannot say that the camaraderie and the friendship that unbelievers share with each other in their sinfulness is a form of love because it is not. It's a form of hatred. It's a form of destruction. You see, they know what they are doing is wrong, and yet it is fun. It's kicks and giggles when their friends join them in these interactions, Paul says. The idea here is the second commandment. First commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Second commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. You know what you're doing is wrong, so the right thing to do, the virtuous thing to do, would be to encourage other people not to do the things you're doing. But that's not what they do. They do the things that they know deserve death, and they heartily clap for others to engage in the same suicidal, sinful activity. It's not camaraderie. It is not love that we see in the world around us in rebellion against God. It is hatred. Now you say, what in the world does all this have to do with me, Pastor Josh? I want you to just flip with me very quickly over to Peter. Peter, 1 Peter, chapter 1. Sorry, it's 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 4. So the world is actively engaged in encouraging people to live in rebellion against God. The world is actively engaged in hatred. They want to move society. They want to move culture away from the Lord, Paul tells us. And you would think, okay, so what this is is they're just going to clap and they're just going to cheer for people who are engaging in evil. doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to criticize people who are trying to live in obedience to the Lord. They're trying to live in holiness with Jesus. It just means that they're going to be cheering for that, that sort of wickedness, not necessarily criticizing righteousness or virtue, right? Right? No. No. If they're going to celebrate evil, they're going to be committed to it to the extent that they are going to lambast you, criticize you, mock you, ostracize you, seek to exclude you, because you're walking in righteousness with the Lord. Peter makes that explicitly clear. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 4, Peter says, with respect to this. Ah, I guess you need a little context. We'll go back to verse 3. I apologize. So verse 3, the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, which is living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Okay, so those are the sins that Peter mentions. And then he says in verse 4, with respect to this, that is engaging in all that wicked behavior, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And then they say, well, to each his own, right? No. Peter says, 1 Peter 4, 4, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So they're so deceived, their mind is so debased 
they come to this self-deceived notion that all the world is just going to interact in this suicidal, self-destructive sort of behavior. And their thought process is, well, yeah, maybe there's a God out there. Absolutely. And yeah, sure, I'm going to be judged and I'm going to go to hell. But, you know, maybe God won't send us all to hell. And so we'll just all engage in this wickedness and this sinfulness and this evil. And by virtue of the fact that we're in the majority... Perhaps God won't be so holy as to consign the vast, overwhelming majority of human civilization to hell, judging them for their sins, which, Paul says, they knew were sinful. Perhaps, perhaps we can play this majority game. Paul says, no. And you and I, we say to ourselves, well, perhaps they don't know any better, and perhaps they'll leave us alone if we just keep our lips zipped and we just don't go with them to these sinful things. And Paul and Peter say, no, they will attack you. So obviously we had a a convoy happening yesterday. I'm sure you've all heard of the truckers rally. And I, I know all of us here have struggled for the last two years. We want to worship the Lord. Going to church isn't considered an essential service. Does that not sound kind of consistent with what Paul is saying with here? The world doesn't think worshiping the Lord is a, an essential service, okay? Which is what Paul says they're going to say. It's a debased mind that doesn't think properly, okay? Of course, we wanted to go to church, and so we did, and of course, there was a lot of risk involved in that. You and I both know that they're chasing after a false god, and they're doubling down at every turn. And it would be really easy for me to just step back and say, let's just talk about the pandemic and let's just talk about all of the moral insanity that's happening where you have nurses and doctors being fired from their job because they don't subscribe to the vaccine and all these kinds of things. Let's just talk about the truckers that are now going to be restricted from coming back and forth across the border because you know they have to be vaccinated even though they spend their whole lives alone inside of a cab and they're just driving all day. We could talk about those things, and and I could clearly illustrate that this is all depraved thinking as a result of a reprobate mind, but my purpose this morning and where we need to be as a church is we need to be wrestling with how we are to respond to this pressure. So I know in the back of your mind, you're all thinking, oh yeah, this applies to that, and you know, put it all aside. Now let's just you and me talk, okay? The world is trying to organize the world under the, under the dominion of Satan, is trying to arrange circumstances in such a way that what Satan's goal is, what Paul is talking about, what Peter mentions, is they want you to be silent. And I dare say that we've all been there. I mean, just this last week, I'm talking with a fellow in the grocery store and he is buying alcohol, and, I, and uh, I, I'm just sitting there looking through my wallet for my debit card, and he starts to talk to me, and, and he says, you know what I'm buying this for? And I said, to have a good time, I reckon. I don't really know. And he says, oh, I'm buying this for my kids. My kid is having his 16th birthday party, and, uh, and, and he then, and I'm kind of, I mean, I'm sure, the look on my face is like, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't say anything, but he starts to then explain himself. He says, well, you know, I, I have two choices here. Choice one, let them go out and do this in the community somewhere where they might get drunk and get into a car and do something crazy and kill somebody, or have them drink at my house where at least I know that they're 
someplace where I can keep an eye on them. And so the presentation of this, this choice goes like this. You know, they're, they're, both choices are sinful. Both choices are wrong. But I'm going to choose the lesser of two sins. I'm going to sin in a way that is less than a greater sin. Where we are as Christians is that we just kind of silently shrug, kind of do this, and be like, yeah, I guess that's what you got to do. How many among us, when we're at work, when we're having these conversations in our places of employment or even in our families around the holidays, we are presented with time and again individuals framing the nature of the moral question not in terms of resisting, refusing, and upholding and honoring the kingdom of the Lord, but in terms of just choosing what seems to be the least harmful course of action. I I remember talking to somebody uh, uh, months and months and months ago, and they came to me and said, you know, I've got this guy, and uh, he wants to be transgender. And uh, he's obviously a guy. He's been a guy for 40-some-odd years in his life, but now he's on his way to go get sex reassignment surgery because he thinks he's going to be happier as a woman. And I'm talking to this fellow. I'm like, you know, that's actually quite dangerous. And he says, well, I say... Live and let live, right? Live and let live, to each his own. And time and again, where you and I are, as we see that and we think to ourselves, that is horrible, that is going to be destructive, that's going to plant seeds of more moral decline, more, more destructive behavior, it's going to tear apart the family, it's going to tear apart the community around that family, it's going to blow over at some point into the society at large. This is a catastrophe. We think that. And then we just stand there and we say nothing. This is all of us. I think if all of us are being very honest with ourselves, we know there have been multiple times in which we were in situations and we observed destructive behavior, but we pulled back and we said nothing. And do you know why? Because you were afraid of being labeled. I've heard all of the good ones. I've been told that I put the fun back into fundamentalist. That's kind of a soft way of calling me a Bible thumper. It's still pejorative. It's still derogatory. It's still insulting. And I've been outright told, oh, you got to stop being such a Puritan, Josh. Likening me to the you know, 18th, 17th, 16th century reformers in, in Great Britain. And it's turned into a criticism. Got to stop being such a Puritan. You're so odd for God that you're no earthly good. Anybody here ever heard that one before? If you haven't heard these terms, you need to say more in honor and defense of your king because I hear them all the time. I'm not trying to say that I'm bra- I, I apologize. I hope this doesn't come across as braggadocious. But, and I, I really am trying not to be that way. But I do speak to these issues, not faithfully, not consistently, not as often as I should. But when I do, these are among some of the pejorative, derogatory things, the names that I'm called. Why are we called names? Well, Paul has just told us. Because the world around us is trying to establish a culture that will suppress righteousness, that will suppress the truth. So the question that we have to ask as we follow Jesus, our King, when Jesus came, 
Did he live according to a code of live and let live? Did, did Jesus come and live his life in terms of, I know if I speak up, they'll say nasty things to me, so I'll just keep myself quiet? Of course you know that's bogus. Tell me you know that's bogus. I hope so. You really need to read more of the Gospels. I mean, really, just page one, chapter one, verse one, really. It's not, it, it doesn't take long before it becomes quite apparent that Jesus came, and when it talks about his ministry, it says he began to preach. See, what this world needs is preachers. Not just guys like me in a pulpit on a Sunday morning, but actually what we're all called to do is to proclaim the name of Jesus as king and his kingdom as coming, that there will be a reckoning. You see, our mistake is we don't think that it's a spiritual struggle, but it really is. And it's a spiritual struggle of the worst, most intense kind. I want you to flip with me to Luke chapter 22. You're all familiar with Luke on the night that Christ was crucified. Jesus told, sorry, you're all familiar with the story of Peter on the night that Jesus was crucified. Jesus told Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And of course, Peter was so confident in his loyalty and his faithfulness to Jesus. He said, Lord, even if I have to die, I will never deny you. And undoubtedly, that's how many of us here today think of our walk with Christ. I am committed to Jesus. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to worship the Lord. I am not going to deny the Lord. But the Lord says to Peter, I tell you, Peter, on this very night, he is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He is going to be praying here for a couple hours. He's going to be arrested. And then all through the night, he's going to have this intense trial where they're going to try and convince Jesus that he's committed some sort of heinous sin, get him to cough it up, confess to it. Jesus says to Peter, on this very night, you're so confident that you're going to follow me to the bitter, bitter end. I'm here to tell you, you're going to deny me three times. Now, this is analogous to our, uh, when we are tempted to stay silent. Because what Peter is trying to do in this situation, he's trying to stay silent. And most of us, when we're in the grocery stores or when we're talking to our neighbor across the fence, we think to ourselves, you know, this isn't really the place. I don't feel the Spirit leading me to stand up and, and give a verbal testimony for the Lord. But what we're really doing by, in our silence is we're contributing to this culture which has as its moral end the suppression of all truth to silence all Christians from speaking about the righteousness of God, this is not a spiritually neutral conflict. You are not in a spiritually neutral place. You think to yourself, well, it's just not the time for me to say something. It is always the time for you to say something. You are always being challenged. We tend to think, well, this just wasn't a good time. I had something else I needed to do. But I want you to know the Lord's expectation as a citizen of his kingdom is that you will always stand up and represent his truth, which means that if you're walking faithfully with the Lord, it should happen at some point this next week, if you have interactions with anybody outside of your own home, it should happen that you're going to be called a Bible thumper or a Puritan or so odd for God that you're no earthly good. All these kinds of pejorative derogatory terms to say, well, and it's not that you have to be hostile or mean-spirited, but you are still called, not to be arrogant or condescending or judgmental, but you're still called to present a witness for Christ. And to bear witness, to give testimony to his kingdom coming on this earth. That's what he has appointed us to do. And you say, this is not a great conflict, it's just a matter of convenience. That's what the world wants you to think. Peter has this interaction with Jesus. He says, I'll follow you to the end. He says, you're going to deny me three times tonight. 
Peter's like, no way. I'm with you to the end. This is not morally neutral. Look at how Jesus describes this conflict. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, this is what's happening. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus gives Peter this heads up in advance of him denying him three times. Whereas Peter is thinking to himself, I'm just having an ordinary conversation with a servant girl in the courtyard of Annas or Caiaphas, the high priest. I'm just, I'm just sitting here having an ordinary conversation. And you know what? I don't feel like I really need to represent right now. I can kind of keep that Christian card in my back pocket. I don't need to stand up and share who it is that I belong to or the nature of Jesus being the king of Israel. I, I just keep quiet on all those things. Whereas Peter probably has in his mind, this is an okay thing to do. Jesus says to Peter on the outset, before the temptation even begins, this is not just a normal conversation. They're never just normal conversations. This is Satan seeking to arrange circumstances in such a way that you're ashamed of Christ. This, Jesus says, is a sifting. Now, we hear that term sifting, and we may not be familiar with it. It's a process whereby Wheat is separated from chaff. You got the stalk that grows up, and they actually have the kernel, the grain, the wheat, the heavy thing. And of course, in, in ancient days, in terms of farming, in order to get at that grain, you crush and pulverize the whole plant into powder, and then you'd throw it up in the air. And of course, the air would carry the light chaff, the stalk of the plant away, and the grain would fall back down to the ground. Now, we, those of us who are familiar with Scripture, we know that uh, this can actually be a sanctifying process. Here, Jesus doesn't use it to describe a sanctifying process. His purpose in this imagery is to show that Satan is wanting to crush Peter. So this innocent, seemingly innocent conversation that he's about to have with a girl, a servant girl, probably 12, 13, 14 years old at the oldest, Peter, a burly fisherman who had spent life fishing on the Sea of Galilee, there's no threat of physical violence that's about to take place. This is a girl just making an accusation. Hey, you're a Christian, aren't you? I don't know the man. Aren't you one of his followers? I don't know what you're talking about. No, no, you're with him. Your accent gives you away. To which Peter then replies, calling down a curse from heaven so that everyone in the courtyard can hear, I don't know the man. This is not morally neutral. This is a testing of our allegiance. They say, but Pastor Josh, if I bear witness to the kingdom of Christ, I will surely endure affliction. Yes, you will. And God brings good in affliction. The question before us is, will we choose affliction or will we choose sin? And the proposition that I'm offering to you this morning is this, the greatest of affliction, the most severe form of agony or torment is to be chosen and preferred over the least, the smallest of sins. When we are called to present a witness for Christ, we present that witness faithfully, even if it brings suffering. There's a couple of 
arguments in favor of this. The first is we, we tend to think that, uh, that sin is bad, but that also affliction is bad. And we're just choosing between the lesser of two evils. But scripture doesn't present the choice this way. In Psalm 119, verse 71, the psalmist says that it was good for me that I was afflicted. He says there's good in it. He says it was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. In other words, God brought about good as a result of the heartache and the pain of walking with the Lord. Not pain and heartache that the Lord inflicted, but that the world brought to bear as a result of this psalmist's faithfulness to the God. He says there was good that came to me through that. In other words, God can use affliction to bring about good, but scriptures never say that God uses sin to bring about good. In Romans 7, 18, don't flip there, just listen. Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. He's he's talking about the sin nature in his body, in his fleshly nature. He says, there is nothing good there. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. My purpose is to simply say this. He's talking about the sin nature in his flesh, and he makes this statement, there is no good in that. So the psalmist says it was good, there was good that came about as a result of my being afflicted. But Paul says that when it comes to making choices for sin, there was never any good that came about as a result of that. So when the world is pressuring us to applaud them in their sin, or when the world is pressuring us under the threat, as Peter says, of maligning us because we stand up for what is right, in that pressure, we are tempted to stay silent when Christ calls us to speak. If we choose the silence, if we choose not to be faithful in our witness, then we are choosing sin over affliction. And there is no good that comes from that, whereas if we embrace suffering, if we embrace the affliction that comes through testimony, the scripture still promises that there will be good that God brings about as a result of that. So there's very clear choice here. And we could belabor the point, and I actually have scripture verses I could use to belabor the point, but I'm looking at the clock and I don't have the time for it. But what I want you to understand is that we actually need to get more and more comfortable walking with the Lord, knowing that we are living in a hostile world and that there can be no accord between Christ and Belial. That there is no partnership, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, between light and darkness. There is no accord between the people of God, the temple of God, and the temples of Baal. There's no agreement here. When we call people to follow Christ, we need to be very clear, very sober-minded about what we're calling them to. We have been completely, completely deceived by over 30 years of seeker-sensitive church ministry in which the worship of God and the way that churches function has been turned into a commodity that is to be marketed and made palatable for people that are not really willing to embrace the full cost of being a disciple of Jesus. This has been destructive, and I think you've seen it in the last two years in terms of how our churches have responded to government intrusion into the worship of the Lord. I think the fruit of that is being seen. 
when we call people to walk with Jesus, we're calling them to societal treason. What Paul is describing, what Peter touches upon, what we are seeing is that there is this worldview which is completely opposed to the kingdom of Jesus. We do nobody any favors when we say, yeah, you know, you can be a good Christian and still live in the sin of the world. There's no hard dividing line here. This is all patently false. If we look at the scriptures, we see this over and over again. This isn't an easy decision. When people follow Jesus, they have to count the cost. And I dare say maybe some of us here need to reevaluate that cost and whether or not we're really paying it. To follow Jesus means to take up your cross and to follow him. Now, there's incredible glory, church. There is incredible glory just over the horizon, as we sang about just a few minutes ago, if you choose to walk with Christ. The problem is that the world doesn't like that, and so they do everything they can to obscure your gaze from seeing the beauty and the majesty of Jesus so that you can only see what's right in front of you. Now, I'm convinced that if we would get a glimpse of that glory, that there would be no comparison with the suffering that this world intends to inflict upon us. No comparison. When we look through the scriptures, we find on multiple occasions that walking in faithful obedience with God has involved a betrayal or a treason or an abandonment or even apostasy in terms of the way the world looks at it. Abraham, when he's called to follow God, he is called in Genesis 12, 1, to go from his country, from his people, and from his father's house to a land that God will show him. He's walking away from his home. He's walking away from his mother and father. He's walking away from everything he's ever known. It is a form of betrayal. He's walking away from his family. God called him to that. And God calls you to that as well, to prize him over your family. Or consider Rahab, the people of Israel, They come out of Egypt. They come to Jericho. In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab had heard of the awe-inspiring accounts of God laying waste to the whole Egyptian nation. And so these spies come to her home, and she knows that if she hides them and gives them safe passage, she is committing an act of treason against her own country, yet she does so. And when they come to her and they say, did you see those guys? Were they here? Do you know where they went? She says, I don't know where they went. All the while, she's hiding them in her own roof. She's lying to the governing authorities, taking her stand with the people of God. She's engaging in treason. And if you're going to walk with Christ, you need to understand that walking with Christ means your allegiance is the kingdom of heaven, not to the government of Canada. Number three, God is calling you, God is calling you to possible abandonment. God meets this woman, Ruth, The story of Ruth illustrates the dangers that we're all going to experience when it comes to conversion. Ruth commits herself to walking with the Lord, and she follows her mother-in-law rather than returning to her native people, the Moabite people. And we might imagine the bewilderment of her Moabite relatives as she's making this decision. Say, Ruth, why? Why would you stay with that desolate woman, Naomi, instead of returning to Moab, your native country, where people will love you and provide for you? Why are you walking out on us in order to go to some old widow's house in some faraway country? Are we worth that little to you? Do you care that little for us? You can just hear these questions ringing in Ruth's mind. And yet, what does she do? 
She goes with Naomi. She says, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. She abandons her country. And church, listen to me. As lovely as Canada is, it is no comparison to Zion. It is no comparison to the kingdom that is coming on this world when Jesus comes in his glory. And certainly last but not least, God is calling you from a cultural perspective to a form of apostasy. The world looks at the right behaviors, the correct behaviors, and attaches what can only be understood as a religious type of fervor to it, such that if you were to buck conventional wisdom, if you were to go your own way, they look at you as committing societal apostasy. You're not towing the religious line. You're not abiding by the spirituality that we are investing in all of these decisions. This is what is happening all around us, and it was the same for the Apostle Paul. The New Testament is replete with examples of costly conversions. And I think perhaps one that we don't give enough attention to is the one that Paul underwent. In his sovereignty, God drew Paul to Christ, even while the scriptures say Paul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples in Acts chapter 9. He's a prestigious Pharisee at the top of his career. Nothing but success is in front of him. Trained at the feet of the legendary Gamaliel, Paul certainly faced untold opposition from those who had been his closest friends in the synagogue as he's almost on the cusp, assuredly, of gaining one of the most coveted positions, a seat on the Sanhedrin itself. All these dear friends, all these political connections, all these relationships, and in the flash of a blinding light. God says you will apostatize from that secular political religion that pretends to honor me, yet has rejected my son. And in the eyes of all of his colleagues and all of his professional peers and people he knew, he commits, can only be understood as in terms of Judaism, apostasy. Of course, it's not actual apostasy is faithfulness to the Lord. And so First Baptist Church, I'm telling you today, if we're to walk with Jesus, it may look like saying no to our families in order to say yes to God, saying that the family of God is better than any earthly family. It might look like abandonment where we walk out on the life we've always known and the people we've always known in order to walk with God in his kingdom It might look like Rahab saying no to the government and the nation of her country in order to be faithful to God and the heavenly country. And indeed, as our world gets darker and darker and darker and more and more these things become religious and spiritual, we have to be willing to embrace the label of heretic in order to be faithful to Jesus Christ. This morning I close with this exhortation from Hebrews chapter 13, one of my favorites. I say that about a lot of scripture, I know. Therefore, Hebrews 13, 13. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he also endured. Jesus was crucified outside the city. Let's go to him. 
us be the people of the Lord. Pray with me. Father in heaven, our prayer is that we would be faithful to you and our witness to you, that we would recognize this world as indeed a version of Satan's playground, a place where people, having lost their minds, having been darkened in their understanding, are now bent on creating and inventing new forms of evil and new forms of wickedness. All too often, Lord, our response as a church has been to try and make church more seeker-sensitive, to make what we do here more and more palatable to a world that is increasingly revealed to be utterly hostile and set against you in every way. Lord, help us to repent from that. But let our repentance not stop merely at the doors of our churches, but help us to be faithful to go, as you have called us in Matthew 28, to go and to make disciples, to share the gospel, to proclaim the good news, to be the preachers that we have always been meant to be by your son, Jesus. In all these things, Lord, help us to embrace the affliction rather than the sin of silence. God, help us to go to your son outside the camp and to suffer with him there. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.